Hey there, this is Gregory Williams, and I'm the senior pastor of Transform Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope the following presentation really inspires you to deepen your faith walk and encourages you along your journey. Enjoy the message. It's interesting, you know, uh, one of my passions is basketball. I don't know if you know about it, NBA basketball. Uh, I love basketball. Unfortunately, we don't get to watch as much as I can over here because, you know, time difference and it's not put free on TV and all these other things. But I still keep up. It's the off-season, which means that they've just finished and they're starting up soon. And some of the big names in basketball are actually free agents. And what free agents means is that they have finished their contract with their team and then they could sign with other teams. And probably uh, the uh, most amazing basketball player that's playing right now, LeBron James, if you don't know him, he's like the best basketball player in the world right now. Not the best all time, mind you, Michael Jordan is better, but <laughs> LeBron James is amazing, and he's just signed with the Los Angeles Lakers four-year contract for $154 million. It's like, wow, that's a lot of money, yeah? Amen. I think we should sign up some church people for that much, yeah? Amen. <laughs> But there's another guy, his name is Chris Paul, he's a guard and he plays for Houston and he's not as good as LeBron James but he signed a contract for four years with Houston, the Houston Rockets for $160 million, which is amazing. Uh, And then the current champions, which is the Golden State Warriors, they've just won the NBA championship and on their team they have, they had four all-stars and all-star means like they're the top echelon of the NBA, so it's not just regular players, the best of the best, so four of them are on this team. And now they signed another one who is an all-star, so they have five all-stars on their starting rotation, which is going to be amazing. So it's going to be an interesting season, you know, when you look forward to it. But I was thinking about these young guys, they come out of college, they come out of, you know, high school, and they sign for million-dollar contracts. Some of them have come from poverty, some of them come from, you know, to homes that are broken and all these things. And they're amazing basketball players, but oftentimes you find that a lot of them, in a few years, they go broke. They go from $150 million to zero. Like, how do you do that? Right? And I was thinking about it, and I said, there's a lot of people that are good at certain things, and they're good at basketball, but probably they're not great at managing their money. Which brings us to the topic of the day, self-control. You know, that's the last fruit of the Spirit, Paul Lister in Galatians, self-control. And when you look at it, what is self-control? Do you remember when you were a kid, and you wanted something? I remember when I was a kid, and I loved sweets. You know, and my grandmother and my mother, they put it in a bottle or a jar away and they said, that's enough. And of course, that's not enough for a 10-year-old or whatever. You know, you want more. So you just wait till they're relaxing or sleeping and you rush over and you steal some. And then they find out and they freak out on you. They say, don't you have any self-control? Like, really, I'm a 10-year-old. I have no self-control. Right? Maybe you were in school and you, know, you were in your class and you were, some of you were great students and you had good things to do and you always listened and you always listen to what the teacher said, but there's others of you who didn't listen at all, who walked around the classroom and chatted when you were not supposed to chat, and the teacher probably said, hey, have some self-control, right? And when you look at self-control in that view, what they probably mean is, you know, your hormones are going wild, things are going out of whack, and control yourself, control your desires, control your emotions, control things in life. And today we want to talk about self-control, if you hadn't guessed already. And it's interesting to note that the Bible has a view on self-control, what self-control actually was. Now, it comes from a Greek word, and if you bear with me, it's going to go through somewhere in a moment, but it comes from a Greek word, a Greek concept, and we want to break it down today, and I want to tell you 
what the view of the ancient Romans and Greeks were. Because I think it's pertinent and relevant for us today because, you know, the world changes, but people really don't change. They're pretty much the same. And so it comes from this word, two words that are smashed together in the Greek. It comes from this word called ekinesia, ekinesia. I'm in trouble saying. Turn to someone and see if you can say that. Ekinesia, ekinesia. Anyway... Right, E-G-K-R-A-T-I-E-I-A, so that's what it's spelled like. So this word, there's actually two words in, in broken together. The first word, the word krat, is actually where we get this concept from, from being great, powerful, uh, leader, lordship, you know, sort of in charge. And then you have this other word, eek, which actually is short for self or ego. And so really there's a battle of these two words in the actual word. Is it a battle for power? Is it a battle for lordship? Or is it a battle for self? And that's the battle that we all face in our lives. We're continually doing that. And so back in that day, the Greek philosophers in the day, during Paul's time, during Jesus' time, there are two philosophers that had two ideas that we want to discuss today and interact with and understand what the Bible actually says about these ideas. The word self-control in Greek times was something of a virtue that they looked at as the paramount virtue in their lives. If they had this, if, you know, if children had it, if parents had it, if sons had it, if daughters had it, if people had it, they would be successful. And everyone wanted to be successful, so everyone was looking for the self-control. But there were two groups of people in that time you know, that had different ideas of what self-control actually was. Like we do sometimes, we have different ideas of what self-control is. If I ask a couple of you, you'd probably give me different answers. But there were these two groups at that time, in Greek time, that had these ideas of what self-control actually meant. And remember, all of them looked at self-control as the paramount virtue, that if you had this, you would be successful in life. So, first of all, there's a group of people, and we call them the Stoic. That's what they were called, the Stoic people. And what they believed is that they had no emotions at all. They had no emotions to deal with. They suppressed them. They pushed them down. They believed they weren't important at all. They thought that feelings and emotions and you know, desires would actually lead, down, lead them down to a, a wrong path. And so they had this idea that people stuff all their emotion down. They don't expose any emotion. They don't show any emotion. If you watch Star Trek, the Vulcans are the Stoics, right? They didn't want to show any emotion. It's not about feeling, it's not about anything, it's just, you know, you just have to act this way. And so whenever they saw something lustful, whenever they saw something that was not appealing to the eye, they would actually walk away in a different direction. They didn't want to deal with emotions or anything that came up when they looked at this thing. And so leaning into emotions, leaning into desires is actually totally wrong for them. They didn't want to deal with it at all. And what I mean is that they had emotions, they just didn't want to express them. And what the idea of doing good was, they did good to prove that they were good. Right? So they did good things, not emotional things, good things to prove that they were good. So they could satisfy themselves in believing that they were good people. And their position was, you know, if you have the right position in life, you're successful because you have self-control. You have all of these things going for you because you have self-control. And they lived this whole life, their whole life with the thought, I've got to make it. I've got to control this thing. I've got to get it together. I've got to believe in myself. I've got to just take control of everything I do and make sure that I am the one in control. And so their idea was this, self-controlling self, right? 
they had control. If I have self-control, then I must control myself. And I must show no emotion, nothing. And so their whole identity was, that's who they were. You know, caught up in self-controlling self. They would not allow themselves to have any emotions at all. And when you think about it, when you think about self-controlling self, who's in control? Yourself. Right? So they were in control. They wanted to be in charge of what they did. It's all about self, and it's consistently thinking, acting, behaving. I've got to make this happen. I'm the one that has to get these things done. And so these Stoics, these were the Stoics, and they were the left-hand side. And then you go to the far right-hand side, and they were someone else. They were the sons of the Stoics. You know, they've been living this life where their parents were like, no emotion, you know, didn't show anything, don't act this way, don't, don't cry, no crying, no sadness, nothing. And so they grew up and they became the Epicureans. And the Epicureans, what they believed is that if you want to live life, what about not showing emotions, not showing sadness, not showing gladness, not showing anything? No, we don't want that. We're going to show everything. We're going to do everything. So whatever their desire was, whatever they desired, whatever their passion was, they did it. There was no holding back. They gave themselves over to every desire of their heart, every desire of their flesh, every desire of their mind. It's all about fun. It's all about expressing how you feel. And they believed if we were in control of self, then we have to unbridle self. We have to let self go. Let self do whatever it wants. And so on one side, you had these people that said, self is controlling self. On the other side, the Epicureans were self. Self is unbridling self. And they did everything. They got into alcoholism. They had sex. They had all of these things going on. And ultimately, what they discovered was that living this lifestyle led to brokenness. They became broken, they became hurt, they became, you know, living a life of debauchery, and all of these things happened to them. They were living broken lives. But if you go on this side, trying to control everything, they led to broken lives too. Their lives ended up being broken because they couldn't express anything, they couldn't do anything, they couldn't have a thought in their mind, they couldn't express sadness, they couldn't express the loss of a loved one, they couldn't express the love of a loved one. And so both these trajectories, both these ideas, both these philosophies about self-control ultimately led to destruction, ultimately led to self-defeat and demoralization. But here's the thing. Jesus had something to say about this. But before I say that, we can all identify with someone in our life that is a workaholic, that just believes that you know, getting position, going to work, getting things done, taking care of this, I'm, going to, I'm in control of this. I can control this. I can get things done. And that defines my destiny. That defines who I am. Because I'm just going to take care of it. I'm in control. And we all have people in our friend circle that we might have encountered. There are people that just say, hey, it's just about having fun. We can do whatever we want. You know, there's no control. You know, just do it. Have fun. Relax. Let your emotions take you. Experience everything. Enjoy everything. We all have people in our lives. And so we're not so different. We're not so far apart from the Stoics of that time and the Epicureans of that time that we have the same sort of mentality and mindset in our current culture. But as I said, Jesus had something to do with this. Jesus had an interaction with this concept. And in Luke 15, 11 to 32, he tells a story. He tells a story of a father who had two sons. On one side, there was a younger son who comes to him and says, give me all your money or give me my share of my portion. I want to take it. To me, you're dead. So just give me the potion, and I'm going to go do it. So he took his share of the potion. He went out. He went to a Gentile nation. He spent all of his money, the Bible says, on things of the flesh. He, he entertained every desire, entertained every passion. He did everything that he wanted. He spent all of his money, and his fair-weather friends just left. 
And it came to the end of, his, of all of that thing and he was broken. He was a broken man with no friends and no money and no family. That lifestyle leads to that place. And then he realized, okay, maybe, you know, I can go back to my father, I can beg forgiveness, and I can just be a servant in his house. I'll be satisfied with that because living as a servant in his house is far better than living in brokenness and emptiness and loneliness here. So he decides, okay, I'm going to go back. And he goes back to his father and he says, Father, I've messed up. Let me be a servant. But the father says, oh no, you can't be a servant. I'm going to restore you to the right place. I'm going to give you a portion back. I'm going to let you know that you're my son and everything you lost is now taken back to you. And because, you know, the, the younger son, he didn't understand grace. That's what grace does. Grace pours out even when we don't deserve it. Grace, grace gives over and over and over again, even when we did everything wrong. But grace comes in and says, this is amazing. Here it is. And so he throws a big, huge party for his son. But the other brother's in the house. And he looks at this and he goes, that's just not right. This guy, he took his share of the money. He went out. He did everything he wanted. Performed everything he did, wanted. And I've been good. And I've been controlling myself. And I've been living in my father's house. And he let all this anger in him. And he, he suppressed it. And he went outside the house. His father comes out to to see him and to meet him, and he says, son, why don't you come in? He says, father, he gets angry, he lets it all out, he says, you don't even know what you're doing. He doesn't deserve that. What you're doing is not right. And he doesn't understand grace either. But the father says, it's grace, it's grace, it's the love. It's grace that covers and so we have this extreme, we have these Stoics who are trying to do good and trying to act right and trying to be everything, but it leads to brokenness. And you have these Epicureans who talk about emotion and spending all their time doing what they want, but that leads to broken lives too. The only thing left is not the choice between those two, but it's to offer, to realize what God offers us. And God offers us grace. It's not a choice between trying to live our lives being in control of anything. It's not a choice to live our lives, trying to let emotion and everything run our lives. The choice really is coming down to this. And what Paul says here in Galatians, in the Bible, he says in 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, law, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Greeks has this as a number one virtue, but Paul is saying, hold on, guys. It's actually not number one. It's the last. It's the ninth one on the list. It's the bottom one. And Paul says, no, remember this, he says, against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So he says, don't live the stoic way of life. Don't live the Epicurean way of life. Live the life of grace. Live a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. Because when you surrender your emotions, it's not about trying to control them. It's not about trying to let them have their way. It's about laying that down for Jesus Christ. It's surrendering to him. What Paul is going on, he says, every one of us deals with the flesh. Every single one of us have this flesh thing. And it's, it's a tricky word to explain because it's not just the body, it's the mindset. This concept of flesh really means that inherently all of us, we have something ingrained in us. We were born into this thing and it's called sin. And it's not a popular word, it's a taboo word. It's not often discussed in churches anymore. But that, there it is, we are born into it. The word sin. That's who we were. And sometimes, you know, 
we do things that might be socially acceptable, but they're not pleasing to God. But something inside of us, something that nature of sin, it kind of bends us away from God. It bends us away from doing everything right. And sometimes we have emotions like lust and envy and anger and slander and gossip and rage. And the sinful nature that when we are provoked, we just react and we go towards it. We bend towards it. We bend away from God. We bend towards these things. But Paul is saying, no, don't do that because of what's happened with Jesus Christ. Because he did it for you. Do you know what they did? Do you know what he's done? Do you know how they developed self-control? They've surrendered those passions. They've surrendered those desires. They surrendered those to the crucified Christ. So it's not about stoicness. It's not about epicurism. It's about surrender to Jesus Christ because the cross took our passions, our desires, and we can lay it down at the feet of Jesus and receive grace. When Paul talks about self-control, he's not talking about the self-controlling self or the self-unbridling self to do whatever it wants. Paul is saying, Self surrenders to Christ. Surrendering all of those things, anything which could lead us or help us bend away from God, he says, take those things from your life because God has destined us for greatness. Friends, I want to ask you this. When Jesus talks about a parable, he always talks about it with a hearers trying to identify with someone in the parable. So where are we? Are we the Stoics? Are we the older brother? Are we the Epicureans? Are we the younger brother? Which camp or which area do we find ourselves in? Because all of us have proclivities and desires and, and natures that we're given to from time to time that lead us or bend us away from God. And what Paul is trying to say is not skewing to the left or skewing to the right, but it's coming straight to Christ, laying it down, laying those passions, laying those desires, those innate desires that take us away and receive grace. Because I can't do it in my own strength. You can't do it in your own strength. It's not biblical. The Stoic way is not biblical. The Epicurean way is not biblical. And what if you say, self-control is actually freedom. I can do whatever I want. I can be like an Epicurean. Well, that's not biblical. What if you say, I want to control my emotions. I don't want to express anything. I want to have them in control. Well, that's not biblical either. Or do you have such a profound understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ? You can be an honest human with passions and desires, with part of you that realizes that you have these things that want you to bend away from God, but you come to him and say, I'm laying it down for you. I'm surrendering it to you. Are you able to surrender to Christ? And I mean really surrender, not, not some superficial thing, not some verbal thing, not some just act of, of your body, but a posture, but a real surrender. And most people say, yes, that's what I want. As Christ followers, we believers, we, we, can, we can commit to that. We can say, yes, I want to surrender. I want to do this. I want to surrender all of it. But the problem is, how do we do it? Because we all understand the concept. We all understand the idea. We all understand what it means. But how do we put it into practice? How do we take that biblical understanding of self-control? How do we apply it in our lives? And I want to take you back to the ancient... Eastern philosophy or idea that King Solomon presents. He has an amazing concept. It's quite simple when you read it, but it has such depth to it. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Proverbs 25, 28. And when you read this verse, it's pure gold. Even for right now, it has such depth to it. Proverbs 25, 28 simply says this. Like a city whose walls are broken through, 
is a person who lacks self-control. Let me read that again. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Now think about that for a second. Just let your imagery go for a minute. You're thinking about the city, you know, the city that in ancient times they built cities and they built walls around the city. They built walls to protect the inhabitants, to protect the city, right, to keep the people safe. And what happens when there's holes in the wall? What happens when a part of the wall is broken down? What happens when there's part destruction in this wall? Well, the enemy can just come in, right? The enemy can just sneak in. Day or night, they can come in. There's no protection. There's nothing to stop them. They can come in and they can take whatever they want. They can take away anything. And so it makes this connection with the walls and the control. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, hey... That's true. If the walls of a city are broken down, anyone can come in and, and ransack the city. Do you know what this reminds you of? You know what it reminds me of? The story of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? He went to build the walls of Jerusalem. I remember what he said. You know, it was back in the book of the Old Testament, there's the book of Ezra. And in Ezra, there's all these exiles, they get captured by the Babylonian king. Babylon comes, destroys the walls of Jerusalem. And now all these guys who have the smarts are living in Babylon, serving in Babylon. And then one day, Nehemiah's brothers and friends come from Jerusalem, and he hears about this. He says, how is Jerusalem? And they tell him, Nehemiah, they say, those who have survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept, Nehemiah says. He wept, he mourned, he was in great distress. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah shows up and he says, you know what? This beautiful place, this is the place where God was supposed to dwell. This is the place where God meets his people. This is the place where they saw that God literally was present. His presence was there. And this place, this precious place to these people was destroyed and ransacked and left broken. And Nehemiah can't, Nehemiah can't take it. He can't deal with this. He looks at these holes in the walls and says, I know I've heard the story of the temple being ransacked. I heard it being destroyed. We can't let this happen. We can't let this city, this precious city, live in ruins. So in chapter 2, early in the morning and late at night, he ends up taking his team and they stop a while, and then he goes on by himself, and he inspects out a wall. He looks at what's happening, and he begins to say, this something has to be done. Something has to be done. And God whispers into his heart and says, Nehemiah, I want you to rebuild this wall. I mean, we're going to do this. We're going to protect this temple. And Nehemiah says, that's what we're going to do. At all costs, we're going to build this wall. Do you know what Nehemiah, Nehemiah's name means in the original text? It means comforter. Comforter. He goes to the city, and he comes as a comforter. Which is interesting, when Jesus said that he's going to leave, he says that he's going to send an advocate, he's going to send someone, the great counselor, and the word he actually uses to describe the Holy Spirit is the great comforter. I'm going to send the comforter to broken cities, broken hearts, broken lives. And I want you to see this, I want you to really take a view of this. Look at what God thinks about this concept. Think about this. What is your body? Paul says in Corinthians that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That our body is a construction by God that has a place for the dwelling 
of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about that when Nehemiah walked around the city. He walked around the temple and he saw these broken walls and potential danger. And he wept and he got on his knees and moaned and fasted. And he says, I've got to do something about this. I wonder if we really believed that our bodies was the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we really believed that that's where God is. If that's the temple, then the question bears beg, who is protecting the temple? Who is protecting our life? Who is protecting this temple? Who is protecting your temple? When we look at the perimeters of our life, like Nehemiah looked and saw the broken walls, when we look into the walls, the perimeters of our life, are there holes? Are there broken places? Are there broken down places? Is there places where the enemy can sneak in and ransack and destroy and mess with our lives? Are there places? It's one of those moments that you stop and say, wow. Because the reality is, that when we talk about Nehemiah and his city, what we picture is a city, a literal city, right? With literal walls. We think about this, that's the imagery that comes to mind. But what God is saying is this your life, your body is his temple. And what does your walls look like? Are they broken? Do they have holes in it? Does the enemy have. Free course to run in anytime he wants and mess with your life. This is what the devil does, you know. He runs into your marriage and messes with it. He causes disruption between husband and wife. He messes with you and he sits back and he goes, ha ha, they're doing what they want them to do. He's trying to mess and stop you from being who God created you to be. He's trying to mess with everything. You know, maybe for you, your hole in the wall is lust. And when you look at someone and you don't look at them just to say, hey, they're beautiful, you have thoughts that lead you to dark places on the internet in times when no one's watching. And it erodes your soul. It erodes your view of people. And the devil sits there and goes, ha ha, he's not ever going to be what God wants him to be. She's never going to be what God chose for her to be. Maybe it's even socially acceptable that you do that. But what does it do to your soul? What does it do to your life? What does it do? Because there's holes. The enemy comes in and messes with you. If you think everything will be okay, I've got to work harder. I've got to get this under control. I'm going to do better. I'm going to make sure I uh, take care of this. That's the stoic point of view, and it will lead to brokenness. Maybe for you, it's about status. Maybe it's for you, it's about your job condition. Maybe for you, it's like working harder so you can take care of your family, but you don't spend time with your family. Hole in the wall. Enemy comes in. Maybe for you, it's finances. You know, you don't, you don't know how to manage your money well. You overspend, you overextend yourself. And something in your house breaks, and the enemy does that. He breaks something in your house where you have to spend more and more. And sooner or later, you're spending more than you have, and you're going into depression, you're going under stress. And he sits back and he gloats. Exactly. I've got you under control. I have you exactly where I want you. You're never ever going to turn to God. You're never going to come to God. You're just going to keep bending and bending away from God. There's so many areas in our life that we struggle with. Maybe it's emotion. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you freak out. Maybe you blurt out. Maybe you just verbally assault someone. You think it's okay. But all the devil has to come and do is put something in front of your face to make you, your, light your fuse and then you're gone again. 
And then there's shame and there's disgrace and there's feelings of insecurity that come with all of these things later. And you can't talk and you can't behave the same way because he's lit your fuse. And you're exposed. Maybe for some of you it's relationships. Maybe you go from broken relationship to broken relationship. And every time you come out of this relationship, you're left more scarred and more broken and more messed up. And he keeps you living this broken life to tell you that the next person it'll be okay. Just go to the next person it'll be okay. But it leads to brokenness and brokenness and brokenness. And he got, he's got you right where he wants you. The problem I think is that if we look at this and we think about it really, I don't think we look at our bodies as seriously as God looks at us. I don't think we hold the same value as what God does. When he looks at our body and says, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? When we look at our perimeter, when we look at what surrounds us, and we all have holes in our stories, you know. There's holes in our stories. And it's interesting to know that all of us might not have the same hole and the same fence and the same wall, but we all have holes in some areas in our life. There's things we do that are not good for us. We, we do Something that we know is not beneficial for us. You know, for me, I, I'm, I have too much love for soft drinks. And, and it's funny, right? But when you look at what it actually does to your body, it's not so funny, but I still drink it, you know? I still do. I know it's not good, but there's a hole there. And there's other places in our lives that we have, and it might not be the same area, but there's holes in our lives that we're putting into our body, we're putting into our lives, that is not good for us. And God says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? What is your perimeter? What is surrounding you? Is it just ransacked holes or is there some sort of protection? Wisdom would say to be aware of the holes in all of our stories, to be aware of the holes in our fences and our walls, and that we do not give the devil a foothold to come into our marriages, into our finances, into our relationships, into every single area of our life and mess with us. I think if we have to believe that, that this isn't from God, this isn't how, how God wants us to live, that our stories can change, we can say, God, I need more of you. We don't have to say, I can manage it all, I can take care of it, I'm going to just be a bit more you know, disciplined, I'm just going to be a bit more, more. I can just be, be more stoic, don't show any emotion. Or we can say, I'm just going to let it all go because you know, life is for living and what else is there? But the way of Jesus is the way of grace. What is the viewpoint of grace? I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, for the grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. The grace of God. This is all grace. Every breath we take, it's grace. And offers salvation to every single person. Every stoic, every epiurean. No matter where you are in life, the grace of God offers salvation. And Titus says, it says it teaches us that this is what the grace of God does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. To say no to those moments when we feel bent to try and do something to live our life from our point of view. But to live a life of self-control and uprightness and godly standing is to live with grace in our life. Jesus Christ who gave himself for, to redeem us from our wickedness and our impurity. He himself sacrificed and he is eager to bring us into relationship. Friends, 
This is all about grace. I'm not asking you to stuff down your emotions. I'm not asking you to minimize your feelings and things that are happening in your life. I'm not asking you to allow the desires to run wild. What I'm asking you to do is receive the grace of God. When you understand grace, you understand your body. Your body, your life is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You understand that God wants to protect His temple and it forces you to ask, how can I do it then? It leads us to the fact that we can live our lives not as a Stoic, not as an Epicurean, but we can nurture self-control by one, choosing the way grace comes into our life. Every moment, every day, not to be driven by stuff, not to be driven by escapes, but be driven by grace time and time again. That's number one of how to do it. Number two is we've got to take an honest assessment of our lives. Look into our lives and see where the holes in our walls are. Look into your story. Look into your family. Look into your surroundings. Where are your holes? Where is the enemy coming in to wreck your life? And we got to go into prayer. We not to go into worship. We have to ask God to reveal it. We have to pray. We have to ask God to build, strengthen, give us the wisdom and knowledge to do it. And when we come and worship God, we worship with all that we have, throwing everything on Him and receiving His grace. Because we have an enemy. Genesis 3, 1 says that he is crafty, he's a devil, he's devising, he's sneaky, he's cunning, he's trying to destroy your life. We need to take assessment of our holes. And maybe for some of you right now, you're going through a difficult time and I'm asking you, where is the devil trying to bend your will away from God? Maybe it's towards pills or bottles or alcoholism or anything else. Maybe it's towards food, or maybe it's just sitting on a couch and doing nothing. Maybe it's just watching a whole season of Netflix in one night. (laughs) And just disengaging with everything else. Is it towards taking your credit card and spending it and putting more money on it because you feel depressed? Is it because you feel neglected? Is it because you feel lonely? All of these things come to fulfillment in the grace of God. The healthiest thing we can choose is grace. And you have to have an honest assessment of your life and and see where are you susceptible. Are you susceptible here? Are you susceptible there? And say, God, I need a savior. I need a comforter to come into my temple and build those walls. Who is the comforter? He's the Holy Spirit. Every one of the fruit of the Spirit. You know what we've talked about for these last weeks What is the Holy Spirit trying to do? He's trying to give us a body that is holy. And holy is not the way you dress. Holy is not the way you act. Holy is not the way you talk. Holy just means separated unto God. Separated to Him. So choose the way of grace. Choose the way of grace when there are holes in your life. Choose the way of grace when you feel like being stoic. Choose the way of grace when you're feeling epicurean. Let me tell you, grace is better than being stoic. Grace is more abundant than being epicurean. Grace is more than anything we have. And the healthiest Christ followers I know are people who are able to say, not just grace, but I have a view, number four, of eternity. It's not just about now, and not just about feelings now, it's just about everything that's happening now, but it's about what Christ wants me to go to. It's my destiny in mind, or where Christ is taking me on this journey. I want to get there. And all that really matters is loving God and loving people. 
It's loving God and loving people. And everything can be boiled down to that. When you begin with this mindset, when you begin with this thought, when you begin with this idea that you are the holy temple, that the Holy Spirit lives in, that the walls of your life are broken down, but there's a destiny in mind, there's a purpose in mind, and the enemy just can't run in and mess with you. Your mindset changes to living a life of what God wants you to do. It's about saying, yes, I have holes, yes, I have mess, but I'm coming now and laying it down and receiving your grace. Grace to cover me, grace to build me up, grace to strengthen me, grace to love me at my weakest, grace to take me further than I could ever go by myself. So let me ask you right now, are you living like a stoic? If that's you, you think you're doing good stuff, can I tell you that grace is better? If you're an Epicurean and you think that it's all about feelings and doing what you want, can I tell you that grace is better? When you choose the way of grace, you're saying, I need more grace. I need more grace. Every single moment, every moment of your life, I need more grace. It's choosing to surrender to the one who loves you the most that pours out grace in your life over and over. But you know what? You know what I desperately want? I know what we desperately want is to be the church or to be a church for the kind of people who know themselves, who understand where they're susceptible and surrender to Him. Really surrender. The people who do this, they have love. The people who do this, they have joy, they have peace, they have patience, they have kindness, they have goodness, they have faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, you know, self-control is last, but I think if you don't have self-control, all other things will be out of whack. Self-control is the foundation of all those gifts. So how about surrendering to God? How are you with really surrendering? Not glazing over areas in your life. You know, David said, search me and find no wicked way within me. Because when I search my life, I'm going to close one door, I'm going to cover something else, I'm going to not ignore that area, but... David says, no, I'm not going to do my own searching. I'm asking you to search me and expose to me my weaknesses so I can build a life of strength and longevity. Search me, O oh God. And so I, can, I, can, I want to ask this question. Are we really at the place of surrender? Or can we really do that? Can we really pray? Can we really ask God to reveal our weaknesses? Can we really ask God to show us the holes in our life? Can we really take an honest look at ourselves and not with anyone else, but just look internally and say, God, search me. And then when he does, that we really lay it down and say, God, you know I have this, but I need a little bit more grace. You know I have this, but I need a little bit more love. Can we do that with all honesty? Can we take a close introspective look into our hearts? You know, and we're closing the series, but I don't want to leave it just like that. I want to ask you, with all the things we talked about with the fruit of the Spirit, can we come to this place of surrender? If we really want this fruit, if we really want God's love, if we really want a genuine, ongoing, successful relationship with Him, we must take on board His direction. And not choose self, not choose stoic, not choose epiurism, not choose to be all of these things, but choose, in fact, the way to lay it down and receive grace. Would you stand with me? Hello again, and thank you so much for listening. I really hope that message has encouraged you. 
would you please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review? This really helps others get exposed to this uplifting message. I would also love for you to share this message with a friend or someone you think would be really inspired and blessed by this. Sharing this on social media like Facebook really does help others also get this free content. I'm honored you chose to spend some of your valuable time with us. Have an amazing day.